Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Rotten Tomatoes is Wrong. It's your girl, Jacqueline, alongside, yet again, my co-host, Mr. Mark Ellis. How are you doing, sir? I don't know what this yet again business is because I have missed you. Oh, <laughs> feels so good. Where, where, where do you go? What, 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 what hidden part of the world were you on? I was away from the world, basically, because I just wanted to be in my house with my dog. So I didn't go anywhere, but I spent a lot of time playing video games and watching old movies and basically not answering email, which for me is vacation enough. But I'm here for this very special bonus episode. And the person that we have as our guest today is one of the few people that could have called me off of my vacation bed (laughs) because she is amazing and awesome. And she picked a film that I love. Of course, uh, we're talking about the one song that spawned a Jay-Z hit that never thought that it would. (laughs) (laughs) Annie is our bonus episode this week. 49% rotten, 69% audience score. Huge shout out to Nicholas Bayfield, a like supreme and premier member of the Ketchup crew who definitely talks to us often. And along with us to chat today, we of course have Alicia Malone, she is a TCM host, and she's going to be a major player this weekend at the TCM Film Festival, where she will be introducing films and being her awesome self. Alicia, welcome to the pod, ma'am. Hi, it's so nice to see you both and to hear your voices. I listen to this podcast all the time. Feels like I'm catching up with old friends. So I was thrilled that I got to the chance to do this. Oh, I do love it. And and a friend of all of us, me, Alicia and Mark have tipped him one or two glasses at a film festival here and there. <laughs> I will yeah. be hopefully tipping a glass with Alicia this weekend because she very smartly moved to Maine. But prior to that, you would have seen us out in these film festival streets here in L.A. and New York and everywhere else just kicking it. But Alicia, why Annie? Like, I think I know why Annie, but really, why Annie? Forty nine percent. Well, it's interesting because when it comes to my job talking about classic films, so many of these movies, because they come from the 30s, 40s, 50s, either don't have tomato meters, they don't have any reviews, or they have five reviews and they're 100% fresh. So I was trying to think of a movie that we could talk about in terms of the context of your show. And it's a film that I saw when I was young and I loved and saw it before I had any understanding about films and film directors and film critics. 
And to look at it in hindsight, I think is interesting, especially given the tomato meter, which I think is a little bit wrong, but that may be through my rose-colored glasses. This is also a film that we're showing at the TCM Classic Film Festival because it's the 40th anniversary for the musical. And I'm going to get the opportunity to interview Aileen Quinn, the little girl who beat out, I think, 8,000 other little girls to win the, the title role of Annie. Yeah, That's it so was literally yeah, crazy. Oh, I, I love it. I, I love that Alicia gets to do this kind of stuff because Alicia and I have known each other for a long time. And it, it's long so time. nice. Um, Jack, you know, a long and, and winding road to get to where we are in life. But it's just nice when you see people who who are so good at what they do and then they find that exact like wheelhouse that they're that they're so happy to be like Alicia's found her ecosystem. And so now to have her back in, in L.A. getting to introduce a movie like Annie that, again, I'll go ahead and say it. The tomato meter is dead wrong here. I mean, 49%. How is this movie that was such an integral part of my childhood that, yeah, my childhood that we'll get into about that. Um, <laughs> Jacqueline, this is, this is one of the travesties that we, this is why we have the show. The, the movie Annie is the reason why we have Rotten Tomatoes is wrong. It really is. And it's, a, and it's, it's so interesting too, because the movie in all ways, shape or form was a failure, but has become a success. Like no aspect of Annie outside of the theater production has been a fraught, like it's been a fraught uh, endeavor. And so it's really crazy to see that. Am I going to be the one person that says that like Rotten Tomatoes is wrong? It does not deserve 49%. But it's sort of like that thing of like sometimes where I say like, hey, I think this movie is fresh, but I have questions. Like the opposite side of that is like, I get this movie isn't this rotten, but I understand. <laughs> like I definitely like I had to pull it up because I haven't seen it in a long time. And it's kind of like Newsies before Newsies was Newsies. Do y'all know what I mean? Like the cheesy things about Broadway don't work. I yeah. like the I, I like the numbers a lot. We'll get into it. There, there's definitely some problematic elements to Annie, but I, I also just found it to be by and large, like with our principles. I just I, 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 I actually rewatched it, too, and I remembered so much, but there were things that I totally forgot. And I was like, yeah. oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. Daddy Warbucks didn't initially. This was a publicity stunt. Yeah. Like all these, like all Daddy these cool Warbucks, little things. Daddy Warbucks was trash. Also, the orphanage. Like there's so much. All right. Without further ado, before we get into it, Mark, please give us the synopsis of everything that happens in Annie before that song. All right. So minor spoilers here. We will be spoiling the episode, uh, the movie, as we always do here on the show. So we have little orphan Annie, but she is in an orphanage in New York City that is run by uh, we, we just really don't like this person too much. But we love Carol Burnett. And so it was kind of like weird to see Carol Burnett play a character like this. And there's this really rich guy, Daddy Warbucks, who is a publicity stunt to kind of enhance his image, decides he's going to adopt somebody for a week, which is kind of like me with dating. Like, I'll go out with somebody for a week and then just see how it goes. He finds a daughter that at least that he adopts in name. And then he actually realizes, hey, this Annie is a pretty nice, pretty cool girl. I kind of like having her around. He decides he wants to adopt her, but Annie really wants to see got her real parents. And she wants to see who can complete this locket that I have that is really my only possession. It turns out that her parents didn't make it. They were in a fire and that's been covered up. And so now we have the situation where Annie still longs for her real parents. She doesn't have the full story. Daddy Warbucks, meanwhile, was like, look, I love this girl, but I want to help her find a real family. So he ponies up 50 grand 
And he's like, hey, I'll give this to anybody who can prove that they're Andy's parents. So you get a lot of fakers coming out of the woodwork saying, I'm the parents, I'm the parents. And then we have your, you know, the, the shelter, the orphanage shelter, not run by the best people, especially they have even more worse relatives. And so then they get involved and they try to scam Annie and it all works out in the end. But what a ride it is to get there. Life and limb are risk, but at the end of the day, we all celebrate because the sun did, in fact, come out tomorrow. <laughs> it did. The sun did, in fact, come out. Oh, I love this. All right, Mark, thank you for that lovely synopsis on what is happening in Annie. But before we get into our movie talk section, we have to break down what the critics were saying in our favorite, favorite segment, Two Men's with Tim. Two Men's with Tim. I want to start off with something personal. Annie depressed me to the bottom of my soul when I saw it as a kid. The basic premise of a little redhead with an unsettled home life was borderline traumatizing to this little redhead. Then again, my wife told me that Annie was her favorite movie as a little kid, so it's possible I'm in the minority here. Years later, I was absolutely shocked to learn that Annie was directed by John Huston. For those younger listeners out there who've never seen any of his other movies, especially my favorite, The Maltese Falcon, I want to say, A, you're in for a treat, and B, be prepared for the exact opposite of Annie. Critics of the time largely felt that musicals weren't Houston's strong suit, and many said that despite the fine performances from Eileen Quinn as Annie and Albert Finney as Daddy Warbucks, the movie was expensive and bombastic, but lacked the charm of the stage production. Annie is rotten at 49% on the tomato meter with 35 reviews, and it has a 69% audience score. So what did the critics have to say? In a rotten review, Michael Blowen of the Boston Globe wrote, Producer Ray Stark and director John Huston have relied more on the rigid style of the comic strip than on the high step and pizzazz of the Broadway show. They've transformed a big-hearted hit that won seven Tonys into a small-minded musical. However, in a fresh review, Kathleen Carroll of the New York Daily News wrote, What makes Annie so winning is that, while it could have easily been just another cutesy-poo Hollywood musical, it happens to be as gritty, genial, and boisterous as little Annie herself. The Rotten Tomatoes critics' consensus reads, John Huston proves an odd choice to direct, miring Annie in a sluggish, stage-bound mess of an adaptation, but the kids are cute and the songs are memorable. So that's Annie. Jacqueline? Mark? Just thinking about this podcast clears away the cobwebs and the sorrow till there's none. Back to you, folks. Wow, the cobwebs and the sorrow. First of all, Tim coming in hot with trauma recall. Jesus. feelings. I mean, I get it, but man, sir. No, hey, look, uh, we will talk about John Houston. We will talk about the darkism at all in our movie talk section. So, Brian, cue the music. Okay, so... Alicia, you said you watched it when you were younger. This movie definitely came out. I mean, depending on the time of year, it might have been the year we were born or the very close to it. So when did you first see it? And what was your initial take of it when you first saw it? Well, I must have seen it when I was probably four or five or something around then. It came out the year after I was born. So I definitely didn't see it in theaters but it was during the time that I was discovering classic films and in particular loving musicals. I think musicals are a great gateway drug into the world of classic films because they're so much fun to watch. You think about Singing in the Rain or my favorite, Gentlemen for Blondes. And at the time in the 1980s, and I write about this in my new book, I was struggling to find young girls I could see on screen because you think about the modern films at that moment, it was 
E.T. and it was Stand By Me and it was a never-ending story and there were all these boys getting to have these wonderful adventures. And so I was really looking for these young girls that I could relate to. And I found that a lot in classic films like National Velvet with Elizabeth Taylor or The Wizard of Oz, of course, with Judy Garland. So I remember falling in love with Annie because she was such a, a scrappy kid. And it's interesting to look back at these films And even though Annie comes from a comic strip from the 1920s and then was on radio and had film versions in the 1930s, it feels of its time of the 1980s just because of the fact that at that time we had really dark children's movies. (laughs) If you think about exactly like Never Ending Story, it's all about grief and depression. Um, But I I really appreciated that. I probably appreciate that more now, knowing that the, the filmmakers of the time were treating audiences and young audiences as if they were intelligent. I know that's one thing that the critics say about this movie is sort of who is it for? Is it for adults? Is it for kids? Producer Ray Stark wanted to bring director John Huston on because he wanted it to be tough and uh, be quite dark. And, uh, and I didn't really notice that as a kid, but now I appreciate how Annie is this beacon of optimism amongst this very dark story. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm -mm -mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch. Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Yeah, it's so crazy that the guy that did the Maltese Falcon. Yeah. Like, that is just crazy in its... Very weird, weird choice. And and I know that's part of the reason for the bad reviews of the time was trying to square this film with John Huston's other movies. And you can draw a long bow, as some critics have, and said, well, he makes movies about dreamers and Annie's a dreamer. But at the end of the day, John Houston said he always wanted to make a musical, even back in the 1930s when he worked at Warner Brothers and he saw those great Busby Berkeley musicals with Dick Powell and Ruby Keeler. And, uh, but at the end of the day, this was producer Ray Stark's movie. It's not John Houston's movie. It's one of those shocking things that you hear. and It's on a level of like George Miller doing Happy Feet. Yes. Or or even like like Sam Raimi uh, directs for the love of the game. And you just don't really think of like Sam Raimi, who made, you know, Evil Dead and Spider-Man to be doing like a sort of a sweetheart baseball story. But, you know, directors are artists, too. And at the end of the day, um, they do have things that they want to do that may be outside of their comfort zone or what audiences know them for. And as far as Jacqueline, Alicia just hit the nail on the head right off the bat with the treatment of kids in the 1980s. Now, look, y'all know I'm not a big fan of children at all, but this was like Temple <laughs> of Doom two years before Temple of Doom came out. Yeah, this is true. Yeah, no, this is so true. Also, 
Two, the 80s was a time, too, where the haves and the have-nots were in starker contrast, some of the ways that they were in the Depression. So I do feel, um, was Newsies 89? Like, like, there was, like, a theme, I think, of this time. You're right. Darker kids' movies, but just this idea of kids being left to their own devices and not it being a good thing. And I think that's probably because this was the first generation of milk carton kids. Like this idea of kids left to their own devices could be dark. And so I think that's why you saw a lot of like 30s stuff maybe pop back up in this time period. I don't know. Uh, Mark, I know you said you definitely think it is fairly unfair to call it a 49 percent. But like, what is it about this movie? Because, again, I still enjoyed it. But again, there's some things where I was like, like Punjab, sir. Oh, gosh. Sir? Yeah. I cannot defend that. No. Sir? N- nor can I. Um, <laughs> that's like what by, I'm uh, saying. I understand. I'm like, I know that's not what the critics at the time were thinking, but that's what I'm thinking now. That, that is that is why I would probably hold the movie to, to be less than a travesty that it's not fresh. But I would still put this movie somewhere in like the, you know, 60s, maybe 70s, just as far as the movie itself. But Jeffrey Holder, who's a, a Trinidad American actor playing, playing Punjab, it just doesn't really... <laughs> It doesn't really hit the mark at all. It doesn't and hit the mark for anything for him as a Trinidadian American. Like he could have honestly probably worn a cultural aesthetic and like like he could have had a cultural um, representation that was his own that would have maybe fulfilled whatever thing the director wanted in that moment. But it was almost like you already have a version of brown person. Why did you have to make it like this weird manservant thing and it's just i don't know it was so specific and so wrong it, it, you show, know? it shows a lack of of any sort of um attention to detail when it comes to portraying somebody who is not white on the screen and and it's really frustrating yeah. to go back and watch and to see how how even even some you know people who we revere would just like be, oh okay this is a person of color they're going to play this role today and it's like well that's you know it's it's completely shortchanging so many different backgrounds and heritages just for the sake of you know, playing some role that and again it's just you don't hold any of it against Jeffrey Holder because it's like it's it's work it's a I mean he got and, work at the time yeah. But I, I think the reason why I have this movie as fresh in my eyes is is maybe the same start that Alicia got with it is that I came to this movie at such a young age and I just loved watching it. I don't know why I loved watching it so much, but I loved watching this movie so much. And this is actually on tape. This is on video in the Ellis family household when I was like four or five years old. My parents were trying to bribe me into settling down to watch a movie. And so I'm on camera and they say, Mark, you want to watch a movie? And I was like, yeah. And they're like, what movie do you want to watch? You want to watch Star Wars? And I'm like, uh uh-uh. They said, you want to watch Annie? And I'm like, yeah. So I prefer Annie over Star Wars. And that is something that that my family still reminds me of to this day is that I I took Annie over Star Wars. (laughs) Can I ask you both the question? Because something I've been considering a lot during the pandemic, you know, noticing the types of films I would turn to for comfort. And, you know, many articles were talking about the rise of nostalgia that we're all going back to these films and these pieces of entertainment from our childhood. So when you watch a film like this, Mark, you know, that you loved in childhood, does it take you back to that time or is it some kind of comfort food because it reminds you of a more innocent time in your life? It really does. And, and, it, and it kind of is a nice gateway into my favorite number in this movie, which is the let's go to the movies. Like, I, I just yeah. remember seeing 
how excited this family was to go to the movies. And and granted, they were going to see, I think they were seeing Camille at, at Radio City Music Hall. And so that's like a big event. But I'm just thinking in my head, like they're really getting jacked about going down the street to Carmike Cinema to catch some movie. <laughs> like like they, they do a song and dance. My family doesn't do a song and dance when we go to see the movie. My dad yells at us to get in the car or else we're going to miss the previews. Like it's, it, it, it was just felt like such a weird idealistic world of this is what we celebrate the most. And I think that all three of us can agree in our hearts. We feel that way about going to the movies, mm. even if we don't express it the way that it was in Annie. Absolutely. And, and interesting, like just to be a little film nerd here about that scene. So that was a song that was added to the movie. It wasn't in the 1977 Broadway version. And I think it's really John Houston doing his Busby Berkeley because you have the Rockettes who come out and do this dance, very choreographed in the same way Busby Berkeley did in that time and chorus girls of the 1930s. But it's it's funny because so Camille came out after the film, the time in which the film set. So I think it came out sort of two years <laughs> after when the film's supposed to take place. But the the reasoning they think is because Margaret Booth was an editor who worked on Camille, this movie from the 30s with Greta Garbo and Robert Taylor. She was actually the first person to ever get the title of editor. Because back in the day when editing started, it was just called cutting. And a lot of women did it because it resembled sewing, just the way that they had to put the pieces of film together. Oh, and it wasn't God. considered like a very technical job or anything that added to the movie itself, just placing it together. But Margaret Booth actually ended up crafting the story so much in the edit room that they realized they needed to come up with some kind of title they thought that what she did was akin to a story editor because she helped to shape the story itself. So they gave her the title of editor. And then fast forward to 1982, she's still working in Hollywood. So she's seen Hollywood from silent films to sound all through all the changes, old Hollywood to new Hollywood. And now I think she has a title of executive assistant to the producer or something. She's very well respected in Hollywood. So the thinking is that John Houston chose to show Camille as a nod to Margaret Booth. I mean, that may not be the case, but I think it's a cool story. I think that's a great story. And I mean, look, it definitely goes to this thing where I, I got in trouble mentioning this, but I've told Mark about it before. It's not my bit, it's Patton Oswalt's, but this idea of female editors, because that shaping of the story is typically done by women, it is also because it is the thing where you have to be the most, I would say, you have to love everything about the movie the most like directors mm -hmm. fall in love with shots they fall in love with moments they fall in love with lines of dialogue writers love that oh i love that line an editor has to be like the mom who says yeah we got to love all the kids equally like we we all have to budget the household account we got to like make sure this is like <laughs> lined out you know that kind of thing and so it just i feel like women inherently have a higher aptitude for the level of humility it takes to do that kind of stuff and a timeliness factor too, because timeliness. It's always, yeah, that is the other thing. <laughs> you know, when you're trying to get all the all, all the rugrats together at Disneyland, it's mom doing the organizing, and it's like, hey, it's it's cute that you shot 80 hours of footage. This is going to be a 90 minute movie. And <laughs> Exactly. It's just another example of like, yes. I can just see it. I can see it in my mind's eye, some old Hollywood meeting with a bunch of men who are drinking scotch and smoking cigarettes. And they're like, oh, yeah, the women are already sewing. It'll feel like second nature to them to let them <laughs> cut the movie, too. We're just the worst. Oh. <laughs> Not you, Mark. 
Not you, Mark. But in general, yes. I'm one head shape away from being Daddy Warbucks. It's coming sooner than later. (laughs) So I there's so many scenes in the entire thing, but I do have to talk. Uh, It's scene slash musical number Hard Knock Life because as a musical theater nerd, it is so crazy to me that the guys who wrote Bye Bye Birdie have a musical credit for a Grammy award winning hip hop album, like legitimately, like they're listed as co-songwriters on that because of the sample for It's a Hard Knock Life. And like to this day, Annie's legacy for me is forever going to be entwined on that because that is still to this day one of the most amazing and awesome rap songs and the album as well. Like, so I just have to do that. So the original Hard Knock Life choreographed dance kids number because it hits so much, man. The fact that that song pulled back to us watching it and the fact that the song was played. I don't know if it was Disney Channel, but it was definitely one of these like ABC kids movies that played all the time. And this actually hits along that same line of like Hocus Pocus, if people remember that, because like it was that same thing. The reason why people like our age love it is it was played all the time for people our age. Like, I guess even in Australia, because I do know Mm -hmm. this movie was like a Saturday night, Saturday afternoon movie that played like all the time on those various things. Is that marked? Am I wrong on this? I just remember seeing it all the time on like, yeah, ABC Kids type stuff. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll defer to to Alicia as far as it replaying all over the world because we had it on tape. And so anytime we wanted to True put that. it, we, we didn't have it officially on tape. We had it on tape with commercials. You would fast forward because we taped it off of TV. So that would imply that it just it, it's airing constantly on a loop. Uh, Alicia, is that how you first discovered Annie? I discovered it like you, Mark, through a tape. Um, So my dad would tape so many classic films from television with the commercials, and he just had this precarious stack of tapes in the living room, and I remember it being kind of like Django where I had to try to take out one tape without the rest (laughs) toppling over. But I definitely remember Annie being played over and over on television um, in Australia, and uh, so I experienced it even through television, even though I was watching it via tape. And I also got the benefit of having uh, Bill Collins, who was our Mr. Movies, uh, do the introduction to the film where he spoke about John Huston being the director. And, and I remember that even though I was too young to sort of piece things together. And I don't know about you guys, but when I was young and watching films that were uh, a period movie, I never quite understood that they weren't from the time in which the film was set. So I watched Annie thinking it was a 1930s film. And I remember watching Grease and truly believing it was a film from the 1950s, not doing the math that, you know, John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John in the 80s still look like they did in the late 70s. I was very confused about that, but I just loved watching these musicals and Hard Knock Life, like you say, Jacqueline's had such a life beyond this movie. And seeing it again, the musical sequence, I'm just so impressed with any kid that can sing and dance and they're doing flips and they've got the brooms and the buckets and it looks like a lot of fun as a kid, but I'm just impressed with their musical ability. No, it's incredible. Actually, and they re- recreated some of that movement, like not all of it, like very like throwbacky way in the Jay-Z video. Like they has the kids on the porch with the <laughs> dog, like bouncing the way they do in the video. It's like hilarious. Also, the cast of this is kind of incredible. I don't think any of them um, were like bragging about this being an entry on their 
on their filmography pretty shortly after it came out, but it, maybe it's changed later. But just the fact that Albert Finney and Tim Curry are in this is crazy to <laughs> yeah. me. To Albert Finney forever will be that scene in Miller's Crossing with the Tommy gun. That is him and <laughs> everything. He's done so many things, but just him in a Coen Brothers movie is just on a different level. And Carol uh, Burnett as as Mrs. Hannigan. And Carol like, Burnett, it, yeah. It, Carol like, Burnett, uh, uh, the beloved uh, queen of comedy for so long, who was such a you know sweetheart through our TV box. That, you know, she's like tugging on her ear, saying goodnight to her kids, and now she turns into Miss Hannigan, and it's like, oh my god, what happened to Carol Burnett? But she's just so good. Bernadette Peters is great, and. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's just Bernadette it, Peters. It, yeah, like they brought Broadway like icons to this. Bernadette and Peters Tim Curry and was the one. Yeah, yeah. It, Tim Curry was the one that I forgot was in the movie for me. And so, so when I put it back on, and and he just celebrated a birthday recently, and so there's that tweet about how um you know you can tell exactly how old you are by the first time that you you, yeah. you knew Ooh. who Tim Curry was. What's your Tim Curry movie, Alicia? Like, what was your first Tim Curry? Rocky movie? Horror Picture Show. I watched Rocky Horror Picture Show when I was way too young. I had no (laughs) idea what was going on for most of that movie, but I remember trying to learn all the steps to the time warp, and that was where I first realized who Tim Curry was, even though I'd probably seen Annie before that. Yeah, no, I the first movie I realized who Tim Curry was was The Worst Witch with Bruce Balk because he played he played the Grand Wizard. (laughs) That was the first time I recognized that it was Tim Curry, Albert Finney, Tim Curry, Carol Burnett. Um, I would say Albert Finney for me personally, it just it adds a level of awesomeness for you. What about you, Alicia? I, you're talking to Eileen, so I guess she'd have to be Aileen, your favorite yeah. cast, me- cast member. Well, I'm so intrigued to hear from Aileen, like how this film has changed her life because, you know, she was signed at such a young age and she was signed to a contract that included sequels. But obviously that didn't end up happening. But it's been the film that has followed her throughout her life. She's showed up to talk about the movie at all the different anniversaries. And I'm sure not a day goes by that she doesn't get a mention of it. She was also in a rockabilly band called Leap and Lizards. Oh, my God. But I also just love seeing Albert Finney in this movie because so producer Ray Stark initially wanted John Huston not only to direct but also to play Daddy Warbucks. Uh, John Huston at this time wasn't in the best health. He was 76. And he, so he struggles and he knew he couldn't sing and dance and do everything that Daddy Warbucks has to do. So they hired Albert Finney, but Albert Finney is doing John Huston. So he's doing his impersonation of John Huston. And so every time I watch Albert Finney doing this character, I just think of John Huston and, and that makes me laugh. I mean, it's probably not a fair assessment and in, in it's my very narrow view of that version of Americana male, but I always thought of John Huston as the American film director equivalent of Ernest Hemingway. Very masculine, very, you well, know. They were good friends as yeah, well. I know, they yeah. Good bodies and, you know. I feel reductive to say that. It's like, well, you know, you're all, you know what I mean? Like just looping all the nerdy girls together. You don't want to do that. But it's very like the way his aesthetic was. And so it actually makes sense that he would do a family friendly movie like this at some point. Yeah, well, he always seemed to me to be such a formidable figure. This tough Irish director uh, could be, you know, quite commanding on a set. But everything I've read about Aileen and her experiences with him was that he was like a grandfather figure to her, made her feel very comfortable. There are photos from the set of him laughing and having a great time. So it looked like he finally 
got to make a, a musical and even though he didn't feel like it was his own movie, that he, he was able to just exercise that little dream that he had. I think that that feeds in, into the nostalgia that I still had rewatching the film so much, particularly during the musical numbers. But it, during the storytelling at points, too, you, you just you feel like this movie was crafted with love, if not with the most um, you know, progressive standpoint in all aspects in mind. But you really do feel like they, they were having a good time making this thing because you get Carol Burnett playing against type. You have it's Tim Curry having a blast. Uh, Bernadette Peters yeah. having such a great time. And it, you just felt like it was fun, even though the story itself is so harrowing. It's still enjoying it, it. You're still enjoying it because because Eileen Quinn is just such a, a light presence as well. And I don't think that she gets enough credit. She her name is the titular character in the movie, but she really does anchor this whole thing. And to audition alongside what? Eight thousand other kids that included the likes of like Drew Barrymore and stuff like that. Yeah, she landed the role. And and I just think it's such a testament to her talent that she was the one chosen. And it does seem like it, it maybe there were more famous stars that were going after that role, but I think that they knocked this one out of the park. Yeah, that one of- I agree. I think uh, I was just going to say, I think, I think she really, um, really landed on a version of Annie. That's not too cloying or annoying. She's very sweet, but she's not overly saccharine. And she is, like I said, this beacon of optimism during the great depression. And in that sense, you know, it reminds me of say Shirley Temple, who is films during the 1930s was usually, they were hugely popular with audiences because she gave them a ray of hope and an optimism for future generations. And I just love the way that Annie affects everyone in the film. Even Miss Hannigan towards the end is admonishing her brother for trying to (laughs) kill Annie. But again, very, very dark. I think Aileen Quinn did a good job of, um, of not being, you know, that perky child star, but just bringing enough sweetness to the role. There is something interesting, too, of the coddling of children's entertainment that we've seen post this time frame, because we mentioned it. Yeah, we had very scary stuff. We mentioned uh, The Wizard of Oz, but Return to Oz, the sequel, very dark. The Secret of the Nim, very dark. Uh, This film, uh, The Temple of Doom. Just this idea, though, too, that you could be dark with children's thing. The interesting, the only thing I've seen in recent memory that even dared to delve into that was Bridge to Terabithia. And you would have thought it like entirely scarred a generation of kids. Because spoiler alert, the little girl in that one dies. And it's very much like, like, I don't know. uh, It's very much like the My Girl death. My Girl is another Mm. one where it's like, it got really dark. Yeah, like that. Um, but we like a, a trail, it's the, 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 the uh, Artam dying in, uh, in freaking never ending story. Artex, there yeah. we go. Artex dying in, in never ending stories. It's interesting that I wonder why dark kids movies went away. Alicia, you have any ideas? I don't know. I just think that there's been more of an emphasis on, and me not having kids at all. You can take this with a grain of salt, but there's been more emphasis on, um, like you say, maybe coddling children or just protecting them a bit more than they were in the past when we were growing up in the 80s. I really appreciated how films at that time would dare to be quite dark. And my first ever memory is of seeing The NeverEnding Story in a theatre, watching the horse Artax die 
thinking I was seeing a real death of a horse screaming so much that my mum had to take me out of the theatre. But even though that was like a traumatic start to my love of movies, I think, (laughs) A, it made me crave more experiences like that where I felt something. I know we all agree that you just want to see a movie that makes you feel one thing or the other and not just meh. And then number two, it might have taught me some things about, about grief and depression without me realising because a lot of the times we were watching these movies and we probably took in these messages and um, these life lessons from them without being conscious to it. I'm glad you I'm glad you got back in the theater because <laughs> you, it, like, I'm, like you probably saw a movie the next week or, or the next few days, because that's one of those things where like you have a bad experience and you just get away from it. We may never have gotten Alicia Malone to see another movie <laughs> ever again after something like that. And I'm formulating a theory now. I think it was sometime in between My Girl and The Sandlot is when we're like, hey, we need to make these kids movies a little more sugarcoated because the end of Stand By Me has a voiceover where we hear like most of the kids that we were just following around are dead or are, are, are destitute. And then we go to the sandlot where that voiceover starts. I'm like, Oh no, did one of them get like stabbed in a bar somewhere? And it's nothing too terrible. It's like, it, yeah. it's like, Oh no, they're all doing something. And so I think that's when we started to be like, Hey, we got to let the kids and the dog survive every movie from now on. Yeah. And then we get into the Disney princess movies and then that's mm-hmm. a whole other kettle of fish. Yeah, no, it's very true. I want to talk about the quotes from this because obviously there's tomorrow, but there's a lot. There's a lot. I would say, I would say that Annie is a very quotable movie. Um, Daddy Warbucks's extreme like billionaire or millionaire capitalism is something that also didn't sit well for me, but the secretary or wherever she is that like throws back at him, you know, like money's never going to love you back. I love that. Like, that is, like, literally one of my favorite ones. Alicia, you got a favorite line? My favorite is probably just because of the way that Carol Burnett um, delivers it is when she says, I don't understand why any child would want to be an orphan. <laughs> yes. Just oh, yes. I forgot about that thing one. To say. So that make, makes me laugh just because of the way that she delivers it. And if this floor don't shine like the top of the Chrysler building or backside wheel. I understand. Yes, Miss Hannigan. What do we say, Annie? I love you, Miss Hannigan. Why any kid would want to be an orphan is beyond me. But I also just love the whole scene when Annie is talking to Daddy Warbucks, Oliver Warbucks, and he tries to give her a locket and she explains how she's waiting for her her real parents. And it's just such a sweet moment that that really stood out to me as I was watching this film again. Now the locket is key. That is very true. Mark, what about you? You got a favorite quote? Well, there's there's a couple of them. And it's one when she's having a conversation with um, with, with another orphan with uh, happens to be named Molly, who don't worry if your name Molly is I'll find you a good home. That's my job. <laughs> um, but, but, but and Annie's sort of trying to guide Molly. And then Molly tells Annie, and I think this is something that like sticks in, in Annie's head, is she says, you're the only one who who has who really has folks like mine are dead. And so mm. I think that just reinforces Annie's belief that somewhere out there are my parents. But then you juxtapose that with towards the end where we find out that Annie and, and she even admits as much to Daddy Warbucks. I think that she says, like, look, I. Uh, you know, deep down, I think I always knew that this was true, that that my parents weren't weren't there. But then Daddy Warbucks just like this. She really won this old 
guy over because he's he says, if you don't get I won't give up if you don't give up. And it's just this like beautiful watershed moment for the both of them. And then you're like, you know what? Even if your parents were alive, I don't want you to find them. I want you to stay with this guy, you know, yeah. team Finney all the way. I guess they're dead. I guess I've known that deep down for a long time. I'm not giving up. Don't you give up. I didn't want to be just another orphan, Mr. Warbucks. I wanted to believe I was special. You are special. Never stop believing that. Yeah, this old Republican. Yeah, <laughs> this old Republican, basically. Yeah. One thing that's really funny, and I don't know if you guys have seen this internet rumor, but it does hold up. Have you guys seen the Annie is Pretty Woman thing? No. I love where it's going. A rich guy hires a little redhead off the street who charms oh, him to Calls pretend him to pretend <laughs> to have a relationship with him so that he can go about the business of doing what he wants to do. And in doing so, he gets charmed by the guileless redhead. They're literally the same scenes, the pretty woman scene, the decorating scene. It is literally the same movie beat for beat. Annie is pretty That's woman. So the only difference is Daddy Warbucks is sleeping with Annie. It's so twisted when you hear it, but it's literally the same story. That's interesting. I'm just glad that you didn't go where I thought you were going to go. I thought you were going to say Annie becomes oh, a no. later in life. Oh, I wouldn't do that to <laughs> the poor has, child. She no. has daddy issues, and so she goes after no. an old man. Oh, God. <laughs> Actually, That's really dark. Very dark. No, Alicia, I didn't Deere go that dark. But no, the, the beats of the movie are the same. Sort of like the beats are of um, real women have curves and Lady Bird are the same. Like, you know, like just the beats yeah, of the yeah. movie hit the same moments. Wow, that's dark, Alicia. <laughs> Mark? I, well, I, I think we're all making this this movie much darker than it ever intended to be. But that's, that, that, that's hindsight and that's what we're little kids. We grow up and we see that. I go back to it's a hard knock life because I, I love that it was used and it is so widely known for the Jay-Z song because I think a lot of the hip hop community is about feeling disenfranchised. And I think that if you're an orphan, you're certainly going to feel like that as well. And so there are these the, these darker undertones about the haves and the have nots that are you know, not glossed over in Annie, but it's not the central focus. We're focused on this one girl, not the societal problems that this dynamic represents but now with our adult eyes you go back and you look at it and you say okay i can still pick so much great out of this but this is a problem that we need to work on this entire orphanage we, we need to focus on all of these orphans not just the we, we don't need other pretty woman stories okay we got the one it was cute now let's find everybody a good home let's find everybody their daddy warbucks exactly no exactly. i exactly yeah i wish i had one honestly it would make life so much easier just give me outfits. Take me away from all of this. I'm just kidding. No, I'm not even being taken away from anything right now except for movie watching. Nobody is. You know, the story of Annie, though, it's not all that dissimilar from my relationship with Molly the Wonder Dog, because initially and I remember I told Molly's mom this back when we were when we were dating and I met Molly. I said she can I said the dog can come over once a week. And because I just I didn't want to deal with the dog. I didn't want to deal with the responsibility. I don't want the hair on my couch. Wow. If you can imagine that. And now cut to me now. Um, she's looking at me right as I'm saying oh. this. And it's she's my she's my favorite little orphan Molly. And she's walking Aww. over here right now. And just like 
like she Annie, is, uh, she warms She's my little baby. And trust me, the amount of money heart. that this beast costs, I am definitely her daddy Warbucks. True that. No. Yeah, I will say that. That's They're sweet. so expensive. Alicia has a pet and, and, and fitting with her job, guess what her pet's name is? Ooh. Famous um, classic film actress. It. I'll narrow it down <laughs> slightly. Famous yeah. classic film actress. I think that the pet's name is is Garland. <laughs> Judy Garland. So like, hey, close. not far, not far. Close. So I, I adopted a little ginger kitty cat. And uh, because she is, uh, you know, a beautiful ginger. And she also she was in a car accident when she was a kitten. And the way that her pelvis fused back together means that she has a real sway when she walks. Mm. She reminded me of a certain someone who starred in Gilda. And so her name is Miss Hayworth. I love it. Got the Hayworth wiggle. Isn't that great? Free to all the kisses. I love it. I love it so much. (laughs) Well, this weekend, Alicia, you will be very busy at the TCM Festival. Um, But for folks that don't that don't, you know, obsessively watch your stuff, I really do love um, you guys' new campaign right now for TCM. And like, I'm going to butcher this tagline, but help me out. What's this? It's it's. It's where then meets now. Thank where you. then meets now. Yeah. Yes, where then meets now, which I think is so great. So yeah, tell us about what you got going working on over at TCM. Yeah, and I love that tagline too because you know so much of uh, modern day films are influenced by classic films, so you can easily draw a, a line between the old and the new. And as you guys know, I mean Mark, especially when I used to bang on about this on our shows that we did, and I'd say, "You like Star Wars." You got to watch Kurosawa or et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> mm-hmm. There's endless, you know, relationships that you can make between. And, um, and it was nice what you said, Mark, about me finding my own ecosystem, because when I first went to the TCM Film Festival in 2016, I looked around, I was like, oh, there you guys are. Here's my fellow <laughs> weirdos who love watching classic films and, and uh, just sitting in the dark. And, and the, the viewers, they, they clap for the most obscure character actors in their brief cameos. I mean, there's so much love and reverence for all these films. And so I'm so glad that we can finally be back in person because our last TCM Classic Film Festival in person was in 2019. We all know what happened in 2020 and 2021 where we were virtual. So now to be back with the the viewers again, it's going to feel special. And our theme is all about reunions. So we have films like Peggy Sue Got Married, which is you know about a high school reunion. And then we have anniversaries like Annie. We also have the whole cast of, well, almost the whole cast of E.T., all the main players, plus a lot of people from behind the scenes. So Drew Barrymore, Steven Spielberg coming to opening night to um, talk about E.T. And um, a lot of little hidden gems in there as well, pre-code films, very obscure titles that you never get to see screened anywhere else. So it's going to be three days plus a Thursday night. So it goes over the weekend of classic film goodness and I'm really excited I get to do some fun interviews as well I get to talk to Lily Tomlin which is gonna oh be oh my gosh yeah because she's there for which film I forgot which she there she's there she's firstly doing her um, hands and feet in cement outside the Chinese theater but then she's also going to be there for all of me which was that great body swap comedy with Steve Martin so I'll be talking to her about that film it oh, might be I the love best that one. of all of the body swap comedies. And it has connective <laughs> yeah. tissue here because Steve Martin was originally sought after for the role of Rooster that eventually 
went to Tim Curry. Now you can't imagine anybody else, but Steve Martin, obviously the wild and crazy guy would have fit that bill really well. But there's also, uh, because Lily Tomlin's such a great uh, comedic actress and, and comedian, she was doing the improv when they were doing the open mic at the improv. She was just doing the open mic, but she wanted to stand out. So she rented a limo. And so she had the limo drive around the improv a couple of times, wait until the crowd was outside. And then the limo pulls up and she gets out. So everybody thought she was like, so she was doing the open mic. And that was just how she wanted to stand out from everybody else. And then she obviously got on stage and the rest is history. I do love oh, that a lot. I really do love that a lot. <laughs> the fact that that's like that fake it till you make it mentality. <laughs> hey, look, I, I still pull up to the improv in my Ford Fusion. So it's it, it, different, <laughs> different strokes. <laughs> yeah, just Keep so, humble. Yeah, ju- yeah exactly. Right. Just celebrated their 50th, too. So that's uh, that's that's the history right there. Anyway. Alicia, thank you again. I will be there. I will be at TCM Festival this week because there's another one that I don't know if you mentioned it, but the fact that when they announced Pam Greer, I was like, my ticket was already bought, but y'all definitely (laughs) doubled down when when she was going to be, because she's going to be feted as well because they're doing coffee in her work with Jack Hill, but it's also the 25th anniversary year of Jackie Brown. So they're going to talk about that. And all right, Alicia, thank you so much, ma'am. And we will see you again soon. Again, please, please, please keep coming back anytime you want yeah thanks to you both this has been so much fun i forgot that people are actually gonna listen to this it's just like catching up with old mates oh i love this it this was this was literally the amc you know theme that this was when then meets now this is the t- the, yeah, you know, yeah 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 that's true Malone, TCM feel, such, yeah. A, such a formative part of my career in talking film and and getting in front of a yeah seriously yeah I, one of these days we'll just do an entire episode of how many bits of advice alicia has given me that have <laughs> <laughs> paid me out dividends. Can't, no, can't. I mean, it's, uh, I, I feel so proud, you know, when I see you both doing so well. I mean, Jacqueline, seeing you at the Oscars, I got so excited. Oh, I sent thanks. you a picture from the TV. I was oh, like, I know. On the TV. Dude, and Mark's Mark, hosting just, radio all this yeah, week in a major market. Well, Mark is, is just such a great host and has always been and a kind person and so much a part of my career. Um, so I appreciate you for, for a lot. You, you gave me a lot throughout my career. Thank you. Both of y'all. Love fest all around. All right, that's it for us. Thanks again, Alicia. We will see you again next tag. We're going to go ahead and open up our mailbag. All righty then. This is from Brian, remember, Brian, sorry, this is actually from Brandon, sorry, Baker. He said, hey, I just discovered your podcast this week and I can't stop listening. Last Jedi and Love Actually are masterpieces. Thank you, Brandon. Scream 2 is one of the best. Game of so season eight is meh. And Rise of the Skywalker, Rise of the Resistance is trash. I hey. love this so much. I can't wait to hear about Hook, which I love. He would also like to suggest the greatest TV show of all time, Mad Men. Mad Men is having a bit of a reckoning. I will say that. People are going back to Mad Men and it's kind of having like an America's top model being like, we thought this was this. It's a lot of toxicity in Mad Men. I, I feel like Mad Men is probably a nice look at how they made the decision to have females be the first editors. And because I've, I've never actually seen the show, but it just feels like it's very that was in the 50s. They probably go back to the 20s and 30s with editing and making that the official title. But I don't know. Mad Men, I've never seen an episode of it. But if uh, if Brandon wants us to do it, then I guess that we are we're here to please our audience. 
Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna see what what's up, Alicia. What's your thoughts on Mad Men? That's definitely playing in your wheelhouse, even though it's TV. Yeah, I love the aesthetics of Mad Men. You know, just the way the production design looks, the costuming, going back to the '60s on Madison Avenue, and it's interesting to think of it in terms of the toxicity because it was commenting on that at the time. Obviously, it was like you say, Mark, very male-dominated um, world that they were in. But I, I'm sure even within that and just in terms of it being a TV show from how many years ago now, uh, there's sure to be problematic issues yeah. that may not have been um, shown on, on screen today. But uh, I still enjoyed the series mainly because I just love looking at the costumes and <laughs> the wardrobe and the history of it all. Which, by the way, I still love Mad Men. In fact, the theme song I still to this day think is one of the greatest theme song uh, art direction pairings in the history of film, a television, I should say. But I've just noticed online people very much sort of coming after it more. Like, you know, you mm. just see a, a particular property where you're like, I think the tide is turning with this one. And whenever the tide is turning on a movie, that's where we come in, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks to your recommendations. <laughs> so please keep emailing us at rtiswrong at rottentomatoes.com. Again, we're still taking hook videos. So please, please, please make sure you send them in. We will make you a part of that episode if quickly if we can. Alicia, ma'am, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for being here, for your lovely recommendation, and for the chat. Please let us know where folks can find you, although I think they may be disappointed when you tell them where they can find you, because <laughs> find is, yeah. is, is quotations. I know, I'd say don't at me because I don't exist on Twitter <laughs> anymore. I took that out. I think Instagram's going to go soon. Um, uh, but you can see me on TCM if you have cable um, every Sunday during the day and every Tuesday night. I also have over here my new book where you can find where all good and bad books are sold. It's called Girls on Film and it's about my life through watching movies. So a lot of what we talked about with Never Ending Story, et cetera, et cetera, is in that book if you're curious about the films that I watched on my way to where I am now. This has just been been a whole lot of fun for for us to do. And uh, this is why we, we love doing the show, not just because we get to talk about great movies and interact with the catch up crew, but get to have great guests uh, from all corners of, of film and discussion and Alicia Malone at the top of the list. So thank you so much <laughs> once again, Alicia. Thanks to you both. Thank Miss you guys. Real quick, before you get out of here, give us a real quick recommendation for anything, TV, movies, whatever. Mm, that's a good one. Um, recommendation. Because I just mainly watch old films. That's still yeah, a recommendation. Oh, I, mean. I don't think it has to be new. I, I think it's got to be something that, that maybe a lot of our listeners maybe didn't check out, and it was just before their time. But you know th that they'll they'll find it relevant. Okay, well, uh, a film that I love that is in my book is called The Bad and the Beautiful, and it's one of the very cynical films about Hollywood that came out during the 1950s. It stars Kirk Douglas along with Lana Turner, and um, it's a it's a very cynical look at Hollywood. So I think it would be entertaining for people to to watch these days. And also the way it's structured is really interesting. It's it's done through a series of flashbacks, so your feelings towards the various characters change throughout the movie. So that's that's my recommendation. Check it out. I like it a lot. All right, thank you, ma'am. Mark, what do we have on deck for next week? The Bad and the Beautiful kind of describes this show, Jacqueline. Um, <laughs> I know. It's okay. I know you're pretty. 
we take turns as to who gets to be who. Uh, next week, we're talking about 1995's Jumanji. So the original one where the board game, just all sorts of hell breaks loose and Robin Williams is just along for the ride. So talking about Jumanji and make sure you all subscribe, rate, review, all that good stuff to this podcast and tell your friends about it. Rotten Tomatoes is wrong. That's the spiel. <laughs> See y'all next week. Bye. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.